Welcome to the Daily Rewind brought to you by ThisDayInBaseball.com. I want to thank you for joining me today. My name is Tom Hannon and I'm your host. Today's Rewind is about the Hall of Fame induction of the greatest right-handed hitter in Major League Baseball history, Rogers Hansby. January 4, 1942, Rogers Hansby becomes the 14th player selected into Baseball's Hall of Fame, getting 78% of the vote, while both Frank Chance, 58%, and Rube Waddell, 54%, will miss out. Uh, by the way, uh, if you look back in our back catalog, you can find on April 1st, uh, a story about Rube Waddell, uh, who passed away of tuberculosis, and some of his very interesting habits in his career. And uh, it was so cool when we did that episode because one of his, uh, uh, his, his relatives actually reached out to us about the episode, which was very cool. Uh, anyways, back to Hornsby. Although the uh, Hall of Fame was uh, newly established, uh, you have to say they had pretty high expectations to only give Hornsby 78% of the vote. Although it's probably because his personality was uh, challenging, to say the least, as we're going to get into on this episode. Now, a little bit about Hornsby. Uh, he won two uh, National League Triple Crowns, and he's one of only two players in the history uh, to win the Triple Crown twice, and the other being Ted Williams. He is the owner of the high, second highest career batting average in Major League Baseball history at 358. And he is considered by most historians to be the greatest right-handed hitter to ever play the game. I actually don't even see how that's debatable. And he is easily the most prolific offensive second baseman of all time. And as we're going to find out, I think he's a little underrated defensively. Hornsby dominated the National League during the 1920s. Much as Babe Ruth ruled the American League in that same decade, Hornsby would win two Most Valuable Player awards during the decade, capture seven batty titles, and led the league in on-base percentage, slugging percentage, eight times each. Perhaps the most remarkable achievement, though, is that he batted a combined 402 from 1921 to 1925. That's right. Over five seasons, he batted over 400. No other player has come close to that type of accomplishment. Not only did he bat over 400 for five seasons, he had a 467 on base percentage, a 666 slugging percentage for a whopping 1.133 OPS, a 201 OPS plus, and if you're into the war statistic, he posted an incredible 49.9 war over those five years. Hornsby would say, I don't like to sound egotistical. But every time I stepped up to the plate with the bat in my hands, I couldn't help but feel sorry for the pitcher. Hornsby was baseball obsessed, once describing his off-season regiment to a reporter in a single, simple declaration. He said, I stare out the window and wait for spring. A perfectionist at the plate, Hornsby really swung at bad pitches, and he always stood in the far back corner of the batter's box and strode into the pitch's delivery with a perfectly level swing. He had a near fanatical training program, and he didn't drink or smoke. He would not read at night or go to the movies for fear he would hurt his eyesight. But Hornsby suffered a glaring lack of tact and was prone to alienate himself by putting his mouth into gear before engaging his brain. 
He was cocky and sure of his superior ability, with little empathy with others who couldn't replicate that which came so naturally to him. His chief interest was in winning, and he didn't hesitate to criticize anyone, be it a teammate, opponent, manager, or an owner, if they got in the way of his goal. Matter of fact, late baseball historian Lee Allen observed, Hornsby was frank to the point of being cruel and as subtle as a belch. Hornsby's boss for the first part of his career, St. Louis Cardinal owner Sam Breeden, once referred to Hornsby as insufferable. Arguing with him, Breeden said, was like having the contents of a rock crusher emptied over your head. With the career so accomplished, you would think Hornsby's most gratifying career moment would be hitting. But that's not the case. During the 1926 World Series, Hornsby maintained that the single most gratifying moment of his career was not his hitting ability, but a tag he made to end the 1926 World Series. If you haven't heard the story, in the ninth inning of Game 7, Pete Alexander, who had pitched Game 6 and was reportedly recovering from a night of celebrating. You see, Pete Alexander was a notorious alcoholic, and Hornsby had told him after he won Game 6 that he didn't have to worry he wasn't coming into the game. Well, turns out the Cardinals needed him, and Hornsby, the manager at the time, had called on Alexander to try to get the final six outs so the Cardinals could win the 1926 World Series. He had put down the first six batters he faced, but with two outs in the ninth, Babe Ruth came to the plate, and he would draw a full count walk on what is reported to be a pitch that could have really gone either way with two outs in the ninth. In fact, Ruth looked to the umpire after the pitch, not really knowing what he was going to call. And the Yankees were down 3-2, to two, and Bob Musil came to the plate. And in game six, Musil had doubled and tripled off of Alexander. So it was a pretty good chance something good was going to happen here. Musil swung a miss at the first pitch, but inexplicably, Ruth attempted to steal second base, and he was thrown out by catcher Bob O'Farrell to end the 1926 World Series when Hornsby slapped the tag on Ruth. That is the only World Series that ended in a caught stealing. Hornsby, who I mentioned earlier was the manager of the Cardinals at the time, said Ruth never said a word. He got up, cleaned himself off, and walked away. Ruth would later say he thought he would catch the Cardinals off guard with his attempted steal. Despite winning the World Series in 1926, all was not well in the St. Louis Cardinal clubhouse. You see, during the season, Hornsby had physically removed Breeden, the owner, from the locker room, and Breeden had just about enough of him. After the series win, Hornsby was looking for a three-year deal with a 20K per season raise. Based on what we heard with the stats and winning the World Series, uh, a raise was definitely in order. But Breeden, like I said, had enough of Hornsby, and he had already had a trade in place. So he had offered Hornsby just a one-year deal with a $50,000 contract. Hornsby not only turned down the offer, he pitched a fit. And in doing so, he unknowingly signed off on a trade that then-general manager Branch Rickey had already arranged. The Cardinals would receive from the New York Giants, Frankie Frisch and Jimmy Rigg, and Hornsby would go off to the New York Giants, and he'd have to deal with John McGraw for the next season. Although he would be traded, it was a complex situation because Hornsby, at the time, had St. Louis Cardinals team stock. 
and that is a situation that is no longer allowed in Major League Baseball. Breeden would later say, I realize that it's the ball club that counts, not the individual. He said he would never again be afraid to trade a player. And that's a pretty bold statement when you're going to trade, at the time, one of the two or three greatest players that ever played the game, like the Cardinals did in 1926. Now, after Hornsby was traded, he would begin a nomadic existence for the second half of his career, playing for five teams over his final 11 years. After being traded to the Giants, he would then be traded to the Braves, he would then be traded to the Cubs, and he would go back to St. Louis and then go to the St. Louis Browns. So he got around quite a bit after his uh, after leaving the Cardinals. Now here's a few things about Hornsby that you may have never heard before. Long after his playing days were over, he was often compared to a young Mickey Mantle in terms of running speed. Hall of Fame third baseman Pi Trainer, who saw both men play, insisted that Hornsby would have beaten Mantle to first base from the right-handed batter's box. And you have to say, that's some wheels there. When people talk about Hornsby, they often criticize his fielding. But in August 26, 1925, in an article in the Los Angeles Times, Hall of Fame shortstop and manager Huey Jennings described Hornsby as one of the best fielding second basemen in the game. And some of the statistics prove out. He averaged 3.31 assists per game, and it's the second highest in baseball history for second baseman. So clearly he had some range. Club owners and teammates alike were motivated to coexist with Hornsby on the basis of this self-evident truth. He was, and remains, the greatest right-handed hitter in game's history. Frankie Frisch, the man he was originally traded for in 1926, said, He's the only guy I know who could hit 350 in the dark. In spite of Rogers Hornsby's continuous nature, his reputation as truly a great baseball player remains unsullied. During the 1950s, while Stan Musial reigned supreme in the city of St. Louis, former Cardinal owner Sam Breeden, who I mentioned earlier, who was responsible for that trade of Hornsby to the Giants, was asked if Stan Musial was the greatest player ever. Breeden considered the question for a few moments before responding, No, I couldn't say that. There was Hornsby. Hornsby died on January 5, 1963, as cocky and resolute as ever. He said, I wore a big league uniform and I had the best equipment and I traveled in style and I could play ball every day. What else is there? And now for a little treat, I'm going to bring in an interview with Roger Hornsby talking about his approach at the plate. Enjoy. Meet Rogers Hornsby. Rog, what is your position in the batter's box before the pitch? My natural stance is in the extreme corner of the box with my feet fairly close together. Here you see Rog in his much talked of position in the batting box. Your attention is called to his forward step as he shifts his weight from his right foot and steps into the pitch. Notice he never pulls his foot away, but steps forward and into exactly the same spot regardless of the pitch. This gives him freedom and power every time he swings. It also allows him easy and proper balance and is a great aid in timing the pitch. This side view further illustrates the length of his step and his smooth, powerful swing. Will you explain why you stand in the extreme corner of the box? Well, it gives me the advantage of stepping in and hitting the ball to any field. It also gives more time to follow the ball. 
Hornsby advises, watch the ball from the start of the windup and be sure not to hit at the pitcher's motion. Keeping your eye on the ball is the secret of timing, and timing gives proper balance in stepping into the pitch. Say, pitcher, how about tying a glove on your ankle? Hornsby also says, I try to hit through the box using the pitcher as a target because there is more safe territory to hit into. Now, I, now I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rogers Hornsby, and you could listen to him and talk about his approach at the plate. And if you want to check out more facts from January 4th, go on to thisdayinbaseball.com slash January 4th, and you'll see hundreds of cool facts, birthdays, and players who depart us on that day. Now, before you go, please make sure to check out our show notes for links to player biographies, pages, and catch up with details you may have missed. And please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you can enjoy all our future shows. Thanks for listening today, and we'll see you at the ballpark.